we are in the season of Easter. Liturgically, that is the time when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring new things to life amongst us. The staff decided during this season of Easter to preach from uh, questions of those things that we as Presbyterians or maybe those things that we as Riversiders or at least those things that we as preachers stand on. G.K. Chesterton said that if you stand for everything, you stand for nothing. And so as part of this series about what we stand on, we are bringing to you six different platforms. Last week was that we stand on the community of faith, the church, the communion of God's people gathered together as the body of Christ. We would call that the tradition of the church. Today, as particularly Presbyterians, uh, I am offering up to you another platform, and that is that we stand on the authority of Scripture. Oh God, open our eyes that we may see and our ears that we may hear as it is given to us through the gospel according to Luke chapter 24 verses 13 through 35. It's Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. Two of them, that is his disciples, the same day, we're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you were walking along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, 
saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. The late poet Maya Angelou tells of growing up in Stamps, Arkansas, a small, out-of-the-way place. Her family were sharecroppers, and she was brought up in the midst of the issue of segregation and racism and poverty. She would walk down the road past her grandmother's house, a dilapidated little house, where her grandmother would be seated on the front porch in a chair. In her lap would be a Bible in which she would be reading. Her hands would be clasped, and Maya Angelou would yell out, Hey, Grandmom, what are you doing? And her grandmom would look down and say, Oh, child, I'm standing on the word of the Lord. Maya said from that word from her grandmom, she always had this image of the hands of God encircling her and holding up that dilapidated old porch in which she sat. She always had a sense of the word of the Lord as that standard upon which her grandmother could always rest and find salvation. As Presbyterians, we too claim that we are stand on the word of the Lord. And we mostly mean by that the Bible, although the word of the Lord is more than just that, as I will share in a moment. But we say that we believe and stand on the word of the Lord in a particularly Presbyterian way. And that is the way I would like to help us with today. As Presbyterians are ordained to office, either elder, deacon, or clergy member, they are asked the question, do we accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be, by the Holy Spirit, the authoritative, unique authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? And we say yes to that. Honestly, not quite sure what we are saying yes to. Does that mean that we are saying yes, that we believe it is the literal, absolute, inerrant, without contradiction or ambiguity, outside of any context or history, that it is the literal, absolute, inerrant word? That's not what we're saying. A man walked into his preacher He was deeply troubled and asked his preacher for help. Preacher said, what's wrong? He said, I used to be a man of affluence, but my business is going uh, downhill. I I don't know what to do. And the preacher said, okay, I want you to get a chair and go to the beach and open your Bible and let the wind blow it. And wherever the wind blows it and stops, whatever you first see at that point, 
that is what you should do. A year later, the man walks back into the office. He lays down a $10,000 check on the preacher's desk, and he says, this is for the church. I just wanted to say thank you for your advice. And the preacher surprised, says, oh, really, what happened? He said, I did just like you said. I sat down on a beach chair. The wind blew. The pages kept turning. It stopped. I looked down. What did it say, the preacher said? Chapter 11, which... which if you don't know means bankruptcy. (laughs) And from that moment on, my life began to get better. Is that what we're saying the Bible is? An answer book. There it is. Or you might say, well, it's just a good historical book. It's a good dramatic book that looks back through history, but it's really antiquated and outdated now. It really doesn't have any appeal or use for us in our world today. It's just a book of truths and stories, kind of like Shakespeare's plays. No, we're not saying that either. We're saying that there's a third option. That is, by the Holy Spirit, the authoritative witness to the Word of God, Jesus Christ and the Church Universal. I worked hard to find my old leatherback Bible because I wanted it to show how daunting it is when we hold the Holy Bible up as a preacher might do while preaching it on television. It's black leathered, it's golded, gold-edged, gilded on the... Uh, if you, some of them are red-lettered editions of Jesus... Uh, a couple of thousand pages it seems it's a daunting almost impossible task to try to read through this yet the preacher holds this up and begins to preach from it and it forces us to ask the question who has whom does the preacher have the bible in his hands as he preaches it or does the bible have the preacher in the bible's hands where is the authority and the source of power The answer to that is yes. In fact, the source of power is even beyond those two entities. To understand the Bible, we must understand a little history. It's 66 books written over 2,000 years of time in particular context of a particular community in particular ways that were the, the nuanced ways of those communities. It is full of letters, poetry, songs, gospels, sagas, some mythology, and some history. We do not believe as Presbyterians that, as they do uh, in Islam, that God with Muhammad uh, dictated every word exactly the way it should be written, and then it would become the holy book for them, the Quran. We do not believe that as Christians, at least not Presbyterians generally. We believe that God inspired the writing of the text through the community of faith, as I said, grounded in time and place and history, and also limited by that time and place. In the Old Testament, for instance, they had no idea that the world was round. They thought it was three-tiered and that the world was flat. So context is really important as we understand how the Bible was written. It was never meant to be a book of rules. 
an answer book, but instead it is compiled as a narrative. The narrative is basically five parts. God created all there is, including humanity. We messed up. Now what? God chooses Israel, God's people, to be for the whole world the message, the blessing of what God will do in redemption, in redemption or reconciling of that mess up. From Israel came Jesus the Messiah, the one in whom God's presence is made known in flesh. That messianic presence died on the cross to show us how much God loves us even though we messed up. And the promise of the fifth chapter, having yet been written, is that in the end, it will end happily ever after. God will reconcile all that God created. That's the story in a nutshell. It's the story we claim as authoritative. And to say that it is that way by the power of the Holy Spirit and that it is the authoritative witness, is to say that that story serves as the window through which we see and perceive God. The window, Calvin called it the spectacles, the lens through which we see and perceive God's presence. Through the Bible. That is not to say, however, that the Bible is the complete fullness of God's presence. It is instead the revelation of that, the window of that, that which we look through in order to see God. There's an old Buddhist story of the people who looked at the full moon and pointed to it for others to see. And over time, they began, instead of looking at the moon, their finger that was doing the pointing, losing sight of what it was that was being pointed out. Oftentimes, we do the same thing with the Bible. We think the Bible is God. And in fact, the Bible never makes that claim for itself. To say that is idolatry. For God transcends everything, even the writings in Scripture. God is God. Scripture is a revelation or window into the presence of God, but not God itself. We are never called to believe in God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Bible as a quadrinity. That's why the authoritative witness of the question to the officers is so important. It is a witness And it's also why by the Holy Spirit matters. Because we cannot understand this witness on our own. I'm going to get in trouble here, but it won't be the first time, and I guarantee it won't be the last. Maybe one of the worst things that ever happened was printing of the Bible so that every single human being could have it for themselves and read it by themselves. Because what happens is we always come to whatever it is we come to with our own perception and bias, our own understanding. We have been conditioned by our parents, by the religion we've been brought up with, by our history, by the culture that we live in. Out of that conditioning, we then come to the Bible and say, well, this must be true, this must be true, and then we start reading it that way. That's why we need, by the power of the Holy Spirit, community. We need tradition. How has the church interpreted this word in the past? It's not just my interpretation. It's our interpretation. We do this together. In spite of that, we do need our own Bibles, by the way, so don't misunderstand me. 
but it's meant to be understood in community. When I was, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, Paul Hooker and I were invited to do a program on WJCT on the issue of creationism versus evolution. Uh, There was a a marine biologist from, I think it was uh, University of Jacksonville or maybe UNF, uh, a woman from a uh, fundamentalist evangelical denomination, and Paul and myself. Uh, The woman was clear that the Bible said God created the world in six days. You don't argue with it. There it is, black and white. The evolutional biologist was saying, there's no way you can justify that scientifically. She looked at us as preachers and said, you must agree in the authority of Scripture. And at every turn, she would say, if we didn't, you don't believe in the authority of Scripture. You don't believe in the power of the Bible. You do not believe in the authority of Scripture. And she was, in a sense, right, but also, in a sense, wrong. Because what Paul and I both we're able to hopefully share is that what we believe in is the authority of God. For it is the authority of God that stands behind in and through the scriptures. The power of God passed on through Jesus Christ and then, you see, shared through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why this morning's passage is so important, I think. Two people going back home They have been exiled from their hope. Tell me these aren't the same two people in the Garden of Eden story who ate of the tree and their eyes were opened and they discovered their sinfulness. It's exactly what Luke is pointing to. These two people going back home, probably a couple. They had followed Jesus hoping that he would be the Messiah. Don't you know, they said to Jesus, who walked up as a stranger, By the way, Jesus was always a stranger after his resurrection until he did something peculiarly Jesus-like that helped them understand, yes, he was present. Don't you know, they said, what, what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus, this one, this mighty one of power, this prophet we'd hoped would be the one to redeem Israel. We had read about it in the scripture. It was clear. It was black and white in our prophets and all through scripture that the Messiah was coming and he would redeem Israel militarily and politically and we would once again be on the same level that we were when David was king. Don't you know we hoped and expected that? And then they crucified him. And we lost all our hope. And Jesus is walking along with them and says, you're being foolish. You're reading the scripture, but you're not interpreting the truth. They had the scripture. There it was. It was clear. They had bounced on it. They had built on it. Everything they had known was built on it. And yet Jesus said, you're not getting it. And from that point on, he began to show them to interpret to them, the text says, the scriptures showing them that. There's another story here too, and that is that the Messiah must suffer and not bring a military victory at all, but an eschatological, excuse me, uh, theological language, a, a cosmic world change experience of God's incredible love for us no matter what, even on a cross. Then they got it. Then their hearts burned within them because this 
power present, this Holy Spirit power present, was helping them interpret the text. And they invited this one back and sat with him at at table. And Jesus took the bread and broke it. And after breaking it, uh, handed it to him. And they got it. You're Jesus. You just done that four days earlier on Thursday night and Maundy Thursday. We know who you are. And as soon as they catch it, he's gone. And they run back the seven miles to the disciples to tell them what they had experienced. And they said, our hearts burned within us as he opened up to us the scriptures. And the point I'm making is, it is the power of the Holy Spirit, wherever two or more are gathered in Christ's name, that gives us the power to understand the text. That is also, of course, the conflict. As someone once said of Riversiders, wherever two or more are gathered, there are at least three opinions. That is who we are. That is who one of the reasons I love this church is because we have issues with authority. From on high, anyone telling us what it is we must do or believe. We therefore come together as community and work this out because we are deeply faithful that the Holy Spirit is present as we do. I called my brother up three weeks ago to ask him how it was going. He was past senior warden of his church in Birmingham, Church of the Advent. Uh, My brother is a lawyer in Birmingham. He's on most issues uh, more conservative than I am. We have wonderful conversations about what we see to be true and how we interpret the text. And uh, I said, how, how are you doing in the church, and how's the church doing with the issue of marriage that is before you? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know? You've always known. You've always had a clear-cut understanding of what the truth is. You've always had a sense of what the, uh, you know, what the text says. What do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I, 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 used, to, I used to know. I thought I knew. But all I can say to you now is that it's complicated complicated wait a minute you're my attorney brother you're my big brother things have never been complicated there i'm i'm sort of giving him a little needle here what do you mean complicated he goes well i I decided that i didn't really understand it and so i just put myself into a position to study the text in a small sunday school setting with our pastor and the more i studied the text the more complicated it got And all I can say is that it's complicated, such as the text itself. We call it a passage, a passage from the Bible, maybe because it's meant in its own complicated way to move us from one place to the other, a passage. And all I can say is that my prayer for us is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our preconceived notions of truth may become more complicated as we move forward. Amen.